Holy Spirit, we ask that you would glorify Christ in our midst this morning. Please give us a sense of the Father's majesty. Please give us a sense of your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would convict the hard-hearted in our midst with the truth of your word. Plow up the stony and rocky soil. We pray also that you would comfort the broken, bind up the wounds of those who are hurting, those who need healing, those who need to be comforted. We pray, God, that you would enlighten the uninformed and correct wrong thoughts about God in our hearts. Lord, we want to know you as you are. We want to see you as you have revealed yourself in Scripture, not our own false assumptions about what we think you're like or what we want you to be like. We want to see you as you are. So give us a clear vision of you this morning. And as we see you, I pray, God, that you would stir up in our hearts a holy desire to worship you and obey you by your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys have heard the common definition of insanity? You've maybe heard people say this, that insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result, right? You know, that's a pretty catchy definition, and in some ways it rings true, but I think really that that's not the definition of being insane. It's really a definition of what it means to be human, isn't it? If we are honest, we all have tendencies and struggles. We relapse into sinful patterns of thinking, sinful patterns of living. How many of you guys have made the same mistake multiple times? Let's just be honest. I think that's all of us. That's all of us. Well, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 20, we find Abraham, the patriarch, the hero of the faith, the man that's been called by God, and he's making the same mistake that he made once before, the same mistake he made back in chapter 12, where he lies about his wife. He conceals her true identity in order to save his own skin. Because he's afraid, he compromises. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Genesis. We've kind of took a break all through the month of December and the first week of January. Um, So we haven't been to Genesis for a while. So I want to just briefly recap where we've been before we dive into chapter 20. Because to understand the parts, we've got to have a sense of the whole, right? We've got to see the big picture before we dive into the details. Now, Genesis really reveals to us who God is. Genesis tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. God is the one who was before all in the beginning, who made everything. We are creatures made in his image, finite beings, created to have a relationship with him. Genesis tells us what went wrong with the world, that Adam and Eve, these two people who had been placed in the garden, they rebelled against their creator. They did exactly what he told them not to do, and they brought the curse of sin and death into the world. But Genesis also tells us about what God is doing to fix all this. God made a promise that he would send a redeemer. Genesis is the beginning of a great story, the the story of the creation of the world, the fall of man. And it's the beginning of the redemption of mankind, and it points us to a glorious end, a consummation one day when God will make all things right, make all things new as they were intended to be back in the beginning. Genesis is really the beginning of the great narrative arc of Scripture. It's a key chapter, chapter one, in this story, the story that tells us who we are, who God is, what went wrong, what God is doing about it, and how it will all be made right. The purpose of Genesis is to lay a foundation for our faith by revealing God to us as creator, judge, rescuer, covenant maker, and covenant keeper. We've met a lot of people along the way. We met Adam and Eve, whose sin brought death into the world. Their relationship with God was ruptured. Because of their sin, the goodness of creation was broken and distorted. But like I mentioned just a moment ago, as judgment fell, a promise of hope was given. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised them something very important. He promised them that, an, that offspring would come and that through the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's good news. It shows us that death reigns for now. But death would eventually be defeated. Life is going to move forward. But that didn't happen immediately, did it? That promise didn't come true within Adam and Eve's lifetime. It spread, sin and death spread to the next generation. Cain killed Abel, didn't he? Killed his brother. But God provided another son, Seth. The promise would continue through him. The generations that followed grew progressively worse and worse. We get to Genesis chapter 6. We see that the whole world is corrupt and God has to wipe everything out and wipe the world clean with a flood. But in a foreshadowing of salvation to come, God provided rescue, didn't he? Rescue for 
one family, a remnant, provided rescue through the obedience of one righteous man, through Noah. The promise was still alive. God did have to wipe the world clean, but he preserved offspring so that the promise could continue. But even in the newly washed world, we see that sin is like this incurable virus that persists. Even in the new family, this new start, Noah's story even ends in shame and the cursing of Canaan. The generations that followed Noah, we see rebellion at the Tower of Babel, and they're scattered. The language is confused. We start to wonder as we read the book of Genesis, are things ever going to get better? It just seems that things keep getting progressively worse and worse. But then we get to chapter 12, and against the backdrop of sin and death and cursing, we have this remarkable promise of blessing. Blessing. There's hope. God calls Abraham, and he promises him descendants. There's that theme of offspring again. He promises him a great name. He promises him land. He promises to make him a great nation. He promises him blessing. And he promises Abraham, get this, that not only would God bless Abraham, but he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. The promise is alive. And this promise is cemented by a covenant. God binds himself to Abraham by an oath, guaranteeing that these promises will come to pass. But things are not easy for Abraham, are they? Just like they're often not easy for us. His faith is often challenged. Abraham's faith is tested. And Abraham's not perfect. He stumbles at times. He makes mistakes. But he does believe. He believes. And God counts his faith to him as righteousness. We see throughout the life of Abraham, throughout the offspring of Abraham, that the promise of salvation for the world is moving forward and growing outward. That's what the story of Genesis is about. So that's a recap of 20 chapters, and it's maybe a little longer than I intended, but hopefully that gets you up to speed so that we can jump into chapter 20. We know where we are. We know what's going on. Now we have Abraham and Sarah in chapter 20. They're still childless. These promises have not yet been fulfilled in their entirety. But God had promised in chapter 18 that within a year, within one calendar year, that Sarah herself, even though she's older now, that she would bear a son. Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1, it says, From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Just to kind of let you know exactly where we are, the setting for this. Remember what happened in chapter 19. God has destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. If you look back in chapter 19, you see in verse 27 that Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord in prayer earlier. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Abraham has just witnessed God doing exactly what he said he would do in judgment. Sending divine wrath, pouring out fire and brimstone upon the cities, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. After this, Abraham journeys south and west, it says, to the Negev, which is the wilderness that borders the land of Egypt. So Abraham is, he has many livestock, he's got sheep and cattle, so he's always on the move, he's always grazing his animals, and because he does not yet possess the land, he's got to keep moving. He doesn't have access to the best pasture land. The land's inhabited. So he's got to take the leftovers and keep moving from space to space to find grazing. After being in the Negev, he journeys then north to a place called Gerar. This is the land of the Philistines. So if, if you imagine, he's gone south and west, and now he journeys north. And as he comes into this new territory, we see a familiar lie and a familiar crisis. Back in chapter 12, Abraham had left Canaan because of a famine, and he had journeyed into Egypt. And because of his wife's great beauty, Abraham was afraid. He says, listen, my wife is so attractive, I'm afraid that, that they're going to kill me and take her. And even though she was beginning to grow older at this point, you know, in these days, these patriarchs lived for years and years and years, 130, 150 years. So for someone to be you know, 40 years old, which is you know, for us halfway through life, 
for them, that would have been only a quarter of the way through. So, so keep in mind, she's exceptionally beautiful, and because of their extraordinarily long lives, that beauty has not faded much, even though she's beginning to grow older. Abraham was afraid of being killed and his wife taken by force, so he passes her off as his sister. And we saw in chapter 12 that, sure enough, she did catch somebody's eye. And it wasn't just any old Egyptian, it was Pharaoh himself, and he took her as his wife. And it's only because of divine plagues sent by God upon Pharaoh's house that the truth is discovered and the chosen family is reunited. Pharaoh says, take your wife and go, and he sends her away. But it seems like Abraham didn't really learn his lesson. Fear, once again, causes him to compromise. Once again, his desire to save his own skin causes him to sell out his wife and to jeopardize the very promise of God. God had said, I will give you a son through Sarah, but he's just lost her. How now will God fulfill this promise to give them a son? As Derek Kidner states, if the promise is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Morally, as well as physically, it will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. Once again, we see that Sarah has been taken as another man's wife, this time by the chieftain Abimelech, who's the the king there in that region. Once again, Abraham is afraid. Once again, he's helpless. And once again, he's stuck. There's no way out. And once again, God steps in. God steps in. This passage is kind of broken into three sections. We see in verses three through seven, the intervention of God. God speaks to Abimelech. He intervenes. So in verse two, it says that Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. In verse three, but God... He came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you. And you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. In verse 3, we see two amazing little words, but God. These two little words are sprinkled throughout Scripture. And they're sprinkled throughout our lives as well, aren't they? God, in his grace, intervenes. God is the one who keeps Abimelech from touching Sarah. God is the one who steps in and reveals to Abimelech the truth and warns him of judgment and gives him instruction to return Sarah to Abraham. God is the one who fixes the mess that Abraham made. God intervenes. He reveals the truth to Abimelech. He says, listen, she is another man's wife. He warns him. You're a dead man because you've taken another man's wife. This is a word of judgment. He gives him instruction. You need to return her. Abimelech protests in verses 4 through 5. He says, listen, I'm innocent. I'm innocent both in my heart and, and my hands are innocent. I didn't know. I had no ill will towards Abraham. I didn't knowingly take another man's wife. And he says, and my hands are innocent as well. I didn't touch her. Nothing has happened here. Okay, she's been taken into my home, but we've not yet consummated the marriage. So he protests his innocence. His innocence. And Abimelech is very aware that God's judgment is a threat not just to him, but to his people. Like Abraham's prayer for Sodom, he appeals to God's righteousness. Will you destroy an innocent people? Lord, me and my people don't harm us. We didn't know any better. And in response to Abimelech's protest, God reveals that it is he whom himself who actually kept Abimelech back from sinning. God, I love how he says in verse 6, yes, I know. God says, I know. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning. And notice what he says, not against Abraham. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God restrained Abimelech from sinning not just against Abraham, but against God. This is the same logic that Joseph will use later. The man, Joseph, as he's imprisoned in Egypt, will be approached by another man's wife. 
and enticed. She invites him to commit sexual sin. And what does Joseph say? How can I do this thing? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's the same logic here. God says, I did not let you touch her. I kept you back from sinning against me. You see, all adultery displeases God. It's a universal law. It's not just for Christians. It's not just for God's people. And then God gives him some instructions in verse 7. He says, restore her to Abraham and seek his blessing. He's a prophet, and you need him to pray for you because that will be the means of you finding relief from the judgment for what you have done. He says, I know what you've done wasn't on purpose, and I know you haven't touched her, but you still are in possession of another man's wife, and unless that is made right, judgment will fall. But through Abraham's prayers and through Abimelech's obedience, there is hope for relief and restoration. So this is God's intervention. God's the one who, who, who keeps Abimelech back from further sin, and God's the one who reveals the truth, warns him and gives him these instructions. Then in verses 8 through 13, we find a confrontation. Okay, so first we have a conversation between God and Abimelech. Now we have a conversation between Abimelech and Abraham. Look with me in verse 8. So, because of everything that God showed him in that dream, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought this on me and my kingdom, this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. He's rebuking Abraham. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. It's interesting here, the public openness of Abimelech, this pagan king, stands out in a stark contrast to Abraham's deception, even though he's supposed to be the man of God. Abimelech gets up the next morning and he calls all his servants together and he tells them everything. Truthfulness, everything's out in the open. It's an ironic contrast to Abraham's lying. And notice that they are all afraid. They all hear this warning from God and they say, we've got to make this right. Abimelech, you've got to make this right. Do whatever God told you to do because we know that judgment will fall upon us. They are afraid. They take God's warning seriously. So he comes to Abraham and he rebukes him. He kind of, he kind of barrages him with all these questions. How could you do this to us? Why did you do this to us? You've, what did we do to deserve this? We've done nothing to you. You see, Abraham's sin has endangered the life of Abimelech and the, life, the lives of his people, the well-being of his people. So Abimelech is rightly indignant. Why would you treat us this way? What did we ever do to you? Abraham responds, but it's a pretty weak response in verses 11 through 13. He defends himself and sort of explains his motives and reasoning, but it's a bunch of weak excuses. He says in verse 8, look, look, look at exactly what he says. Or sorry, not verse 8. Um, it's verse 10. Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? You know, what's your motive? Abraham said in verse 11, I did it because I thought, here's what he thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. It's kind of an ironic error. Remember in verse 8, it says all the people were greatly afraid. It's actually the pagan people, these Philistines, and their leader Abimelech, who were fearing God. And you know who wasn't fearing God? You know who wasn't taking God's promises seriously? It's Abraham. It's Abraham. He's the one who's not fearing God. These people did. But he says, well, I thought you didn't fear God. Secondly, he says, well, God put me in this position. God put me in this position. He says, God, in verse 13, caused me to wander from my father's house. Sounds a lot like the garden, doesn't it? When God comes to Adam and Eve and says, where are you? Did you eat from the tree? And, God, and, and, and Adam says, it's this woman that you gave me. And then the woman says, it's this snake that you created, blaming God for their sin. 
We see traces of that here in Abraham's words as well. God caused me to wander. I'm in a strange place because God called me out here and wouldn't let me stay comfortable at home. Excuses. He also says, besides, this is a part, part, partly the truth. She is my sister in one sense. She was his half-sister, the daughter of his father, not the daughter of his mother. And to us, that might sound outlandish and strange, but we have to remember this is a different time period in history and a different culture. At, at this point, these people were not as far removed from the source of the gene pool, you know, Adam and Eve. Today, the gene pool has gotten a lot shallower so it's very unhealthy and dangerous for us to marry people that are that closely related to us. But at this point, that wasn't as much of a problem. And it was custom for many people to marry cousins or, or relatives like this. Uh, later, God would actually outlaw it uh, for the nation Israel. But that's not for a couple hundred years after this. At this point, he's not violating any law. It's a common custom. And he says, listen, she, I told you half the truth. She is kind of my sister, and he says, besides, this is, this is what we always say. It's nothing personal against you. He says, you know, when God caused me to wander, I said to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Apparently, they did this all the time. That doesn't really make it any better, does it? It almost makes it worse. He says, why would you tell me this lie and do this? And he's like, oh, we lie to all the people. How does that make it better? I don't think it does. But even though Abraham's response is lame, Abimelech responds with humility and obedience to God. We find resolution in verses 14 through 18. So God's intervention in the first section, he talks to Abimelech. Then we have this confrontation as Abimelech talks to Abraham. And then we find resolution in verses 14 through 18. Sarah is restored to him. Abraham is enriched. And the Philistines are healed. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all, all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abimelech was innocent of knowingly robbing Abraham of his wife. He was innocent of committing adultery. He had not touched her, but he still needs to make things right, and he does. He returns Sarah to her husband, and he shows honor to Abraham. Even though Abraham had put him and his people in danger, he shows him honor and goodwill by presenting him with sheep and oxen and servants, and he gives him full access. He says, graze wherever you want. The whole land is before you. You have first pick, first choice. Rather than getting angry and sending him away like Pharaoh did, he says, he puts out the welcome mat and says, take whatever land you please and graze. He blesses Abraham. He blesses him. It's an irony here that the pagan king fears God, the pagan king acts righteously in obedience to God, and the pagan king blesses Abraham because it's supposed to be the other way around. Abraham is the one who's supposed to fear God. Abraham is the one who's been called to be blameless and walk righteously before me. Abraham is the one who's supposed to be a source of blessing to all the people of the world. But here it's an ironic reversal. Not only does he pay tribute to Abraham, but Abimelech publicly vindicates the innocence of Sarah by giving Abraham a thousand pieces of silver. Now, this is a huge payment. The normal price for a bride, the normal dowry was 50 pieces of silver. That means that he gives Abraham the price of 20 brides. He's showing everybody, saying, listen, her honor is upheld. Nothing has happened here. And I'll prove it. I'll put my money where my mouth is. Her dignity and her innocence, her purity is vindicated before all. He not only honors Abraham, he honors Sarah. And then Abraham prays for Abimelech. God opens the wombs of the people, and they are blessed in the sense that they are able to continue having children. And this was more than just them wanting to have some happy family with a bunch of children. It was a life and death issue. They needed, they needed soldiers. They needed farmers. They needed workers. It was through the bearing of children that these villages would grow into larger coalitions of cities and nations 
life and death hung on the next generation. And God restored that to them, gave them children. God opened their wombs through the prayers of Abraham. Abraham then becomes a source of blessing. Not only is this in keeping with God's purpose, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, but it's also a sign, isn't it, for Abraham and Sarah. What had God promised them? He had promised them that they would have a son. But Sarah is barren, and she's growing old. She has no children. But if God could close or open the wombs of the Philistines, he must be sovereign over Sarah's womb as well. To the weak faith of Abraham and Sarah who doubted God's promise, God's saying, look, I can do exactly what I said I would do. Trust me. Trust my promise. Isaac would be coming soon. In fact, he comes next chapter, but we'll see that next week. But that's how this story ends. Restoration. His wife restored to him, her honor and dignity restored. They're enriched and blessed and given free access to the whole land. And God spares Abimelech and his people because of the prayers of Abraham. Now you might wonder, because this story has a lot in common with the story in chapter 12 with Pharaoh in Egypt, you might wonder why would Moses record this story? Because there's other things that happened in Abraham's wife that God didn't bother to include in the Bible. Why would Moses record this story? Since it so closely mirrors something that's happened already, what does it add? What does it really add to the development of Genesis? Well, on one hand, this chapter is a sort of autopsy of sin, isn't it? Abraham is going back to the same dirty drinking water. It's an old sin that's rearing its ugly head once again. In Genesis, we have not just one, but two warnings to us. A warning to you and a warning to me. A warning about the danger of unbelief. The danger of of distrusting the goodness and the promises of God. The danger of resorting to our own fearful solutions because of pressure. Pressure comes into your life and what happens? You're tempted to take control. You're tempted to not wait on God. You're tempted to try to manage it and fix it. And you're tempted to compromise, to do things that displease God out of fear. Because you think, I've got to. It's do or die. And our instinct to survive sometimes trumps our faith in the promise of God. This is a warning to us, not just once, but twice. We are shown this warning. But what I want to highlight in this story, because we focused on that last time, what I want to focus on in this story is not just the sin of Abraham. I want to focus on what this story shows us about God because it's a revelation of God's grace. Here's the point this morning. What do we learn in this story? We learn that despite unbelief and despite repeated failure and even despite ignorance, God preserves the promise by his grace. That is the undeniable truth that emerges from this story, that God preserves his promise by his grace. It's by his grace. God's covenant-keeping grace is the focus. Theologian Millard Erickson says this when defining grace, because that's a word we throw out all the time. What does it mean? Here's what grace is. Grace means that God deals with his people not on the basis of their merit or worthiness, what they deserve, but simply according to their need. In other words, he deals with them on the basis of his goodness and generosity. Friends, that is who God is. It's not just what he's like. That is who he is. He is a God of grace who deals with his people not on the basis of what they deserve, not merely giving them their just desserts, God deals with us on the basis of our need, out of his love, because he's generous, because he's good. That is his grace. And this is the lesson that needed to be driven deep into the hearts of the nation Israel. That's the audience to whom Moses is writing. The first people to read the book of Genesis was that generation of Hebrews who had just been rescued from Egypt after being slaves. You know, God sent the plagues on Pharaoh, They came through the Red Sea. They're wandering the wilderness. And God gives them this book, Genesis. Moses writes it for them so that they would know that it's not because of their righteousness that they happen to be God's chosen people. I mean, Abimelech is more righteous than Abraham in Genesis chapter 20. And you know what? This lesson needs to be driven deeply into our hearts as well. 
that we are recipients of God's abundant and unmerited grace. God doesn't love you because you're more worth loving than somebody else. He doesn't love you because of what you have to offer him, because of what you have done for him or what you will do for him. God loves you simply because he chooses to, because he wants to, because he is a God of grace. And he's chosen to fulfill his promises to bring forgiveness and salvation and redemption to sinners like you and me. That is a lesson that needs to be driven deeply into our hearts. What I want to do briefly here is just show you sort of a kaleidoscope of grace. Have you ever looked in a kaleidoscope? You know, it's one of those tubes. You, you point at the light and you twist it. And the little different pieces, they shift and they move. And it reflects different colors as you see different angles of the components of that tube. God's grace is not just one simple thing. What I want to do is hold up God's grace this morning and twist it around and, and, and angle the light so that we see all the different facets of God's grace here in Genesis chapter 24, facets of God's covenant-keeping grace. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the things you should write down. Number one, God shows restraining grace for the sake of the covenant. God shows restraining grace. Grace does all sorts of things, and among other things, God's grace restrains. God showed grace to a pagan king, grace to Abimelech, God didn't let him touch her. He kept him back from sin. Sin that would have been an innocent mistake, but it would have been sin nonetheless, committing adultery. God showed grace to this king by stepping in and revealing the truth to him, warning him. This grace protected Abimelech. This restraining grace also protected Sarah. I mean, imagine her husband just allowed her to be taken into the harem of this pagan king. And God's grace restrains him and protects her. God's restraining grace preserves the promise. She will be the, father, she will be the mother of, of Isaac, and Abraham will be the father. Abimelech will not father any children through Sarah. God's restraining grace preserves the promise. This should give us confidence that nothing that happens to you and nothing that happens to me is outside the will of our Father. The reality is that things in this world are bad, they are broken, but hear me, they are not as bad as they could be. You know why? Because of God's restraining grace. God's grace restrains sin in the world. It is right on the one hand that we look at the world around us and mourn and grieve just how broken things are. We mourn the ravages of cancer, as we should. We weep because of the pain of fractured families. We mourn because of the ugliness of racial animosity that exists in our society. We grieve because of the horror of destructive addictions that wreck people's lives and cause untold pain. But here's the reality. It not only could be, but it would be much worse in our world if not for God's restraining grace. It would be like the days of Noah. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, the world around us is messed up. There's bad stuff going on, but you cannot say that the intentions of man's heart around the world is only evil continually. There is goodness in the world. There is grace. There's even people who don't believe in God who show kindness and humility and generosity. Why is that? It's because of God's restraining grace. He keeps back the sin from, from becoming as malignant as it could be. You know, in Romans chapter 1, Paul, Paul tells us that God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness in this way, that those who suppress the knowledge of the truth willfully and knowingly, those who intentionally reject God and suppress his truth, it says that God gives them over to their lusts, that he, it says three times in Romans 1, that he gave them over to their desires. There is a kind of judgment where God simply takes his hands off he says, fine, if that's what you want, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. I'm not going to hold you back anymore. And he lets people pursue the path of destruction. And it says that that's judgment. Now, if that is a kind of judgment that's reserved for those who knowingly suppress the knowledge of the truth, 
that means that that's not the case with everyone all the time. Have you thought about that? That means that God doesn't give everyone over to the sinful desires that are latent within their hearts. Friends, this is God's restraining grace. There is a terminal stage of unbelief where God gives people over, but that's not the case universally because of God's grace, his common grace that makes this world a, a, a place where life is possible because the days of Noah were worse than the way things are right now. And you know why God restrains sin in the lives of unbelievers? It's because of his grace, because of his goodness. And he does this for the sake of his people, for the sake of the promise. God shows restraining grace to Abimelech for the sake of his covenant with Abraham. And this should bring us comfort, should make us thankful that God restrains sin for the sake of his people, for the sake of his covenant purposes. But secondly, I want to twist this grace and and shine a new light on it. God shows not just restraining grace, but God secondly shows rescuing grace for the sake of his covenant. God shows grace here to a vulnerable woman, to Sarah. He protects her from physical harm. He rescues her from Abimelech's household and even vindicates her dignity before all. Although Abraham was apparently not concerned with her purity or protection or reputation, God was. God was. And this should comfort us. When we feel vulnerable, when we feel exposed, when we feel exploited or abandoned, hear me, God knows and God sees and no one is invisible to him. And in his grace, he is able to rescue. He's able to rescue. No one is inconsequential to God. And this is his grace. Although Sarah was treated like a pawn by Abraham, she is essential to God's plan. She will be the mother of Isaac. She is precious to him. And therefore, she will not be abandoned to Abimelech's harem. And all this is done, why? For the sake of God's covenant promises. So the promise could be fulfilled. God shows rescuing grace for the sake of his covenant. This isn't the first time God does this, and it's not the last time. As you read the Bible, you see again and again and again that God rescues his people in ways that only God could because of his grace, because of his promise, so that he could fulfill his plans. Third, God also shows redeeming grace for the sake of the covenant, redeeming grace. God shows grace not just to Abimelech and holding him back. He shows grace not just to Sarah, rescuing her, protecting her. God shows grace to Abraham in this chapter, doesn't he? Abraham was an unfaithful man. He failed, and he failed again in a way that he shouldn't have because he should have already learned this lesson through the whole situation that happened in Egypt. But even though Abraham doesn't deserve it, God restores his wife to him. He brings her back, and he increases Abraham's wealth. He blesses him. He gives him access to free grazing, and he even gives Abraham an opportunity to be a channel of blessing to this man and to, the, to his people, to pray for him, to fulfill the purpose that God had originally intended for him. Friends, this is grace. Abraham gets not just a second chance, but a third chance and a fourth chance. You see, Abraham made this mess. He deserves to lose his wife. He deserves to lose his privilege of being God's channel of blessing. But God has other plans. And because God intervened and showed grace to Abraham for the sake of the covenant, the situation is redeemed and restored. And it's all because God intervened and showed grace. And friends, this grace, this redeeming grace that overcomes sin, this grace is extended to us as well. It is because of God's direct intervention that you and I can experience salvation. Abraham has lost his wife, but God stepped in revealed himself to Abimelech, and restored Abraham. You and I were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive. In his grace, God has intervened. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because God has intervened and extended redeeming grace that has overcome your sin, granted you forgiveness and cleansing, and granted you the gift of salvation. By grace, we have been saved through faith, not because of works. It's a gift of God, a gift, the same word that grace comes from, so that none of us can boast. 
The same grace that preserved the promise to Abraham. The same grace that would later provide to him a son named Isaac. This same grace would one day be revealed in the sending of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from this fullness we have all received, John says, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, overflowing grace, abounding grace. Grace that, that overshadows and eclipses grace. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came, was born, lived a righteous life, died in our place, and rose again so that the grace of God could be poured out on us. In Titus 3, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God shows redeeming grace. He keeps his promise to crush the head of the serpent, to undo the effects of the curse, to reconcile sinners to himself, to repair our ruptured relationship because that's what he intended to do. That's what he promised to do. And it is by his grace that he brings it all to pass. If we are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Though you may fail, though you may sin, though you may do the same things again and again and again and struggle and wrestle, God's grace is greater. There is, for those who are in Christ, no condemnation. If we confess our sins, John says he forgives. If we draw near to him, James says, he will draw near to us. The same flood of grace that brings us to Christ keeps us in Christ. The same ocean of grace that washed us and made us a new creation continues to cleanse and to purify. God's grace is greater than all our sin. I love what the old Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote. He says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Although Abraham failed, God did not. His promise would continue. Powered not by Abraham's virtue, but by God's grace. And friends, though you and I may fail, though we violate God's law and we fail to do what God has commanded us to do, in God's grace, as revealed through his son Jesus, there is salvation for you and for me. Salvation for those who have never tasted it, to come and be made new. And renewed cleansing, continual forgiveness for those who do know God but have stumbled once again. It's redeeming grace, redeeming grace. And then finally, God exercises sovereign grace for the sake of the covenant. You know, in all of this, what we see is God is the one who's in charge. Even though Abimelech has no idea what's going on, even though Abraham's trying to manage things and fix it, but he makes it worse, God is the one who's in charge. And it is his sovereign grace that governs every detail of the story towards the defined goal of accomplishing his covenant purposes. The marriage of Abraham and Sarah is preserved so the blessing might come to the world through them. You see, in keeping their marriage intact, God is showing grace not just to them, he's showing grace to you and me. Because if Sarah is never restored to Abraham, Isaac is never born. If Isaac is never born, Jacob is never born. If Jacob is never born, the 12 tribes of Israel don't exist, including the tribe of Judah, including the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which means you and I have no salvation. God's sovereign grace is at work here so that his purpose of bringing salvation to the world could be accomplished. God is in charge. He is in control. Abraham and Sarah were rescued and reunited not only for their sake but for ours. This is God's sovereign grace at work. And this sovereign grace has been at work not just here 
But actually, since eternity past, in electing sinners to salvation, God's grace, sovereign grace, has been active throughout human history as God has promised and provided and, and proclaimed salvation through Jesus. And this sovereign grace will continue to govern every aspect of history until the fullness of his plans are accomplished, until the glorious climax when Jesus returns. And there is a people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who are worshiping the exalted King, Jesus Christ. That's where all of history is headed. And it is God's sovereign grace that will steer and direct and govern all things to its intended goal. God exercises sovereign grace for the sake of his covenant. It's always been that way, and it always will be that way. Friends, all of this is God's grace. It restrains, it rescues, it redeems. It's God's grace. What I want to ask you this morning is this. Are you part of this community that is experiencing God's grace? This community, this new covenant community that has been redeemed, that's been restored, that has been made right with God. The scripture tells us that this new covenant community, this people that God is saving by his grace, the ones who will taste and experience his saving grace, that this community experiences cleansing of sin, new life, a new heart, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls it being born again. If you will renounce your sin this morning and trust in Jesus, you can be a partaker in God's grace kind of grace that will save you, forgive you, make you new, and guarantee you eternal life, a life of joy with Christ in heaven instead of an eternal death, suffering the punishment and condemnation for your sin. All of, all of mankind is headed in one of those two directions, and it is only those who experience God's saving grace who will get to experience eternal joy in heaven with Christ. Do you know him this morning? I want to share with you the good news that you can be the object of God's love. You can be the beneficiary of his sovereign power. You can be the recipient of his mercy and his grace if you will repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. God so loved this world, as we love to quote from the Gospel of John, he so loved this world, including you, that he gave his only son so that whoever believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Whoever believes will experience grace instead of justice. Will you believe? Believe on him this morning. You need his grace. Believer, those of you who do know Christ, let me ask you, are you amazed by his grace? Are you starting to see the different angles and facets, or is it this one-dimensional, simple concept in your mind? that doesn't flood and permeate your entire understanding of who God is. Are you amazed by his grace? I love how in the book of Job, after this amazing picture of who God is, it says these are but the outskirts of his ways. Friends, I could preach for five hours, and I could not even begin to describe for you the majesty and the splendor of God's grace. It's just bigger and more beautiful and more comprehensive than I have words for his grace does so much more than we can possibly describe. Does it amaze you? Turn to, to Psalm 113, and with this we'll, we'll close. I want to read this for you. Psalm 113. You see, when we gaze upon the grace of God, our right response is worship. Psalm 113 is a hymn of worship to God, the God of glory and the God of grace. Psalm 113 says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Why? Why is God to be praised? Why, Why is he to be worshiped like this? Verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He's a God of glory, but he's not only a God of glory, he's also a God of grace. Look at verse seven. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap 
to make them sit with princes, with the princes of the people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. He is a God of glory and a God of grace. And the psalmist says, who is like the Lord our God? And the answer is no one. There is no one like our God. A God of sovereign grace who brings about nothing less than the display of his glory and the fulfillment of his promises for the salvation of his people. As Isaac Watts wrote, his very word of grace is strong as that which built the skies. The voice that rolls the stars along speaks all the promises. When in fear, trust in his grace. When you're put in harm's way by the sin of others, trust in God's grace. When you taste the bitterness of your own failure, trust in God's grace. Rejoice in it, meditate on it, rest in it, worship him for it. God is a God of grace. There is no one like him. And despite our failure, despite our weakness, despite our sin, God preserves his promise By his grace, such a precious gift ought to be treasured, not dismissed or discarded. Such an essential truth ought to be celebrated, not casually assumed. Such a crucial doctrine ought to be studied deeply and not ignored. Such an indescribable gift ought to be shared with a world in need of grace, not hoarded and kept to ourselves. May we see the splendor and beauty of his grace, and stand in awe of him this morning. May the reality of God's grace permeate our minds. May it shape our understanding of God, and may it penetrate our hearts and produce love and worship for him. God of heaven, we worship you. God of glory and grace, there is no one like you. You preserve your promise by your grace. You've brought us salvation, though we do not deserve it, though we could never earn it. It's because of your grace and your mercy that we can know you and be forgiven and redeemed. Lord, if there's any here this morning who don't know you, have never experienced your grace, and, and they are still separated from you because of their sin, if they are still in danger of judgment and condemnation, because they've not yet come to the foot of the cross to receive your grace, I pray that today they would repent of their sin and hold out their hands to receive what only you can give, the gift of salvation, the gift of grace. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would love and worship you today for your grace and that we would tell this good news to those who are in need of it. We pray that you would help us to see you rightly, to love you passionately, and to obey you faithfully, and to trust you in all things. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.